everybody. Welcome. Um, today, I'm joined with a very special guest, Art Bell, the creator of Comedy Central. And with me, of course, is Darice Walker, my co-host as always. Darice, say what's up to everybody. Welcome, everybody. My name is artist Darice Walker. I'm pleasantly, pleasantly surprised by our guest, and I'm excited as Dario is. And uh, I just want to say thank you once again for uh, coming back to join us, Living Life Fearless. We are here. And our guests, super, super, I mean, I don't even know what to say, like accomplished, but just hardworking, funny guy who loves all things, promotes all things comedy, has a book that we're going to speak about as well. But before we get to that, this gentleman, Art Bell, please, uh, you know, just say hello and, uh, you know, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Art Bell. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm really, uh, I'm really glad to be here. Really glad to have you. Um, like, like Dari said, um, you have released a book, a memoir titled Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Uh, we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about, you know, the journey to creating Comedy Central, the ups and downs and everything kind of in between. But before we get into the questions and all of that, uh, first, I want to say on behalf of me, and all my peers from my generation, I want to say thank you very much for creating, you know, one of the probably most pivotal channels in our generation. It was honestly the one that kind of shaped socially and like how we view things. And it's one of the biggest things that's ever come along. Well, thanks for thanking me. Nobody does that. Um, but I am. Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, for real. We got to. You know, like you appreciate a clap for that, man. Like, really, we 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 humbly appreciate your effort with that. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm I'm really glad. Uh, Comedy Central has has made an impression on you guys and everybody else. Yeah, it's made a huge impression. Um, I know in the book you, especially early on in the book, you talk about MTV and kind of how it was, it was the brand new thing on the block and how it kind of was shaping culture in the generation that was coming before it or that was coming up with it. How it was kind of irreverent and it was whole playing into the rock and roll thing. But I think for I can say, especially in my circle of peers, Comedy Central was kind of that like MTV by the time we were really growing up, it kind of already become kind of super commercialized and you know, whatever. And wasn't it was no longer the cool kid on the block, but Comedy Central was always that kind of irreverent, you know, kid on the block that was always pushing things into a new new direction. And socially, like I said, with the the political shows, the South Parks, everything, and it, it really just shaped, you know, the way that we we view things. And it was that. Yeah. yeah, well, that's good to hear. It's always good to hear we were, somebody was better than MTV. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. definitely. I, I, I mean, honestly, I, I can't speak with Reese, but I'm pretty sure he didn't watch too much MTV. Like, when we were growing up, it wasn't, it wasn't a mainstay on my TV. No, it wasn't. It was like... I mean, your shows really gave us like a way to be, you know, just like funny and like witty and also like uh, ambitious creatively, you know, like like I guess I feel like that's what MTV kind of had as an edge. But then they as they like commercialized, that's what they lost. But, uh, you know, like um, Comedy Central, just like from your animations to the live action stuff to, you know, just like almost having just like foresight into the future like the way yeah. things you know it's just like you guys are a little bit ahead of your time even from day one you know so uh 
it's just it's it's pretty crazy how influential just the channel uh i mean the uh the yeah just just comedy central as a whole has been to like so many other channels and like even shows and all that so yeah it's uh i'm, I'm really proud of it i'm really proud of what it's become i was you know i was there for uh the first eight years and then i left um and uh it's great to look in my rearview mirror and see it's still standing and still being that, you know, kind of cultural icon that it's become uh, and influencing yet another generation of, of comedians. So, uh, uh, and launching a generation of yeah. comedians. So, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. I mean, that was, a, that was a, probably one of my first questions is do you ever really just kind of sit back and really look at the impact, you know, that, that the channel, your idea really had and has on the world because it goes so much deeper than just the shows. If you even go farther down the line, what you set up, it led to so much more into even just looking at like the daily show, it spun off what, like 10 different big celebrities who went on to, you know, influence other things in culture and comedy. Do you ever kind of just sit back and think about the impact and the huge impact it's had on, on the world as a whole, especially American culture? Um, it's a good question. The answer is no. I mean, I, I don't. I, I, it's really interesting that you guys are talking to me about this because, you know, for most of my career, I wasn't at Comedy Central. You know, it was kind of a big lead up to get there. I was at HBO mm -hmm. before that. And then I went on to other channels and everything else. And sure, I was always proud of it, but I never really kind of stopped to think about, you know, until I wrote the book, really. I, I, it's not just today, this moment. But until I wrote the book and people started seeing what it all involved. I really didn't think about how uh, how impactful it was and how um, how many people were influenced to go into the business because of it, you know, to become comedians or or to, uh, you know, to explore just that side of themselves in a way they wouldn't have otherwise. So, yeah, it's great. You know, I mean, whenever when I, when I was working at comedy, people would say, hey, what do you work in television? Why? I say, hey, I make people laugh. We make people laugh. Yeah. That's, I mean, how can you even say that there's a better way to make a living, you know? Yeah. It's important. it's important. Yeah, and um, I mean, your idea, it's been something that you talk about in the book. It's, it was something that you had gestated on for a while and that had always kind of been with you and comedy had always been a central part of who you were as a person. And coming up in TV, you said you kind of started, you we're trying to find a way in and your way. in, I think was through HBO and you were kind of in the, I think financial department of HBO. If I'm yeah. correct. That was crazy. I mean, it started, you know, really the start of my life in comedy or the path to comedy central started when I was a kid. I love comedy. I, I don't know why that was the case. And I guess a lot of kids love comedy, but I really love comedy. I mean, I watched everything I could. I was eight years old. I remember watching, you know, some of the great Alan King, you know, Richard Pryor. I saw the mm -hmm. first time when I was very young. Uh, on television and I just couldn't get enough. And then when the albums started coming around, you know, Robert Klein and, and George Carlin, I was on top of that stuff and wrote some stuff in high school and college. I did some performing, not stand up so much sketch, uh, but it was always like the second thing I was doing. You know, if I was going to college, that was number two, going to high school, that was number two. It was never the first thing I was doing, but man, it was always there in a big way. And yeah, it was an important part of my personality to be funny, especially when I was a kid, when I had to, you know, Richard Pryor tells us stories about her. He used to tell about, 
you know, getting beat up as a kid on the playground and trying to talk his way out of it by being funny. And that, I think that's, you know, I'm not going to say just me. I think that's universal. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people find themselves talking, trying to, you know, talk their way out of things and trying to be funny to do it because that's the, <laughs> that's all they got left. You know, we're backed against the wall. And, and um, it's funny uh, just to jump ahead. When we started Comedy Central, one of the things we saw was, you know, people like you were watching and stuff. And we would talk to them, you know, either they'd write letters or we'd do research and talk to talk to the audience. And a lot of guys in high school said, you know, it's really important for me to be funny because it's just, you know, because guys who are funny, I don't know, they just seem to have a better time and make a bigger impact. So, you know, that was one of the reasons that my idea to start a channel about the whole thing didn't seem too nutty to me. Yeah. Other people thought it was crazy, but I, I said, no, no, you know, it's um, it's it's important to people. Comedy is important to people. Yeah. Uh, in a way, similarly to music, I would I've always said, you know, it's similar to music. Very parallel. Um, yeah. um, but people didn't people didn't see it that way. Anyway, I went to college and I majored in economics. And uh, when I came out of college, I got a job as an economist in Washington, worked for three years. I was doing econometric forecasting models for the government. And it was it was I worked with some of the smartest people I ever saw in my life. I got to the end of the three years and I said, you know, I don't think I could do this the rest of my life. So um, I went back to school. While I was in school, it was grad school. I wrote this musical comedy that was, you know, um, part of what they did at school. You know, a satirical musical comedy called The Wharton Follies. And I wrote it and it came out great. And it reminded me how important comedy was to me. So when I came out of school, I said, I'm going to get a job at, you know, in television. And then I looked around and said, why is there no comedy network? I mean, I was just like, it was just, I couldn't figure it out. There were, you know, so other cable networks were starting up, but there was no comedy channel. And I thought, ah, somebody's going to start one eventually. So I'll just get a job and then, you know, we'll take it from there. Um, the way I got to HBO is amazingly, they were looking for somebody to do forecasting modeling. And a friend of mine knew me and uh, that I did that. And he said, you know, you're probably the only guy in the whole entertainment business who knows how to do what they're trying to do. Come over here and take this job. So I did. They hired me. And I did that. And you got to, you know, I, I did it with the hope of getting into programming at HBO. I really wanted to do that. But, um, you know, forecasting models was about the last thing I wanted to do there. I got to say. <laughs> but I realized. Put on the door. If I did that, oh man, I get some sunshine coming. Um, if I did that and I worked hard, then people would, you know, take me seriously. And um, so I did. And then kind of like a year later, uh, I got moved to an area called New Business Development. And that wasn't programming. That was also financial and marketing analysis. But at least I was moving around a little bit and people started to know me. So. That's where I, that's where I first decided to pitch the channel. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, obviously the most important thing sometimes is just to get your foot in the door, you know, to even be around the people to that make those type of decisions. And, and you were able to do that, maybe not through the way that you wanted to, but you were still able to, you know, get in there. Yeah. But you know what? I think there's an important, you know, I hate to say lesson, but observation to be made, you know, so many people think that, uh, you have to, like, if I wanted to be in programming, I had to, like, try and get a job in programming. But that's not that's not necessarily true. If you get a job close to where you want, hmm. 
that's helpful. And what really kills me is people who don't try that. Like I was talking to this kid the other day and he says he loves watches and he had gone to Switzerland and went to watch factories and stuff. I said, Oh, so you're going to get a job in a watch and you know, with watch. He said, no, I could never do that. I could never do that. And I said, why not? He said, well, you know, how do you make a living at that stuff? I said, I don't know. Why don't you go find a watch company and ask him? I mean, it's just, it just seems that there's opportunities. I wasn't asking the guy to go be a watch designer, but if that's what he loves, you know, why not try it? Anyway, we digress. Um, But yeah, you don't have to be, in programming on day one to get over there. That was, mm. that was the lesson, you know, that was the thing I learned. So I, um, I was there and I was working on this project that failed uh, at HBO. They had put me on um, uh, a team that was trying to, trying to develop a new channel called Festival. Right. That's what. Festival was a pay TV channel. You know, HBO was extremely successful in the mid eighties when I was there. But they thought everybody should be watching HBO. And of course, everybody wasn't. So they figured out that, okay, why aren't people watching HBO? Reason number one, too expensive. Reason number two, people said there was too much sex, violence, and bad language on HBO. They didn't want that in their home. They want their kids to see it. So they were going to start this festival channel. It was going to be like kind of no sex, violence, and bad language, you know, airplane versions of movies. And and so the first... (laughs) I remember the first day I got to the job, I'd said to my boss, now, wait a second, we're doing an entertainment product that has no sex violence and bad language. This will never work. (laughs) And she looked at me and she said, shh. (laughs) And of course it didn't work. Um, So I had just been the marketing analyst on it. So I um, was kind of out of a job. I didn't have much to do. So I figured, okay, now's the time to pitch you know, my channel, maybe they'll do it, you know, maybe, maybe somebody will take me seriously. So I made an appointment with the head of HBO programming. Her name was Bridget. And she said, she'd see me. I didn't know her, but she'd see me. And I said, Bridget, you know, I got this idea. I think HBO should do a comedy network, 24 seven comedy. And she said, stop right there. That is the worst idea I've ever heard. Nobody's going to watch a 24. Who wants to watch a 24 hour comedy channel? And she said, and no decent comedian would be on it. You think Whoopi Goldberg's going to be on it? You think Robin Williams is going to be on it? No, they're not going to be on it. So how are you going to start a comedy channel without those guys? And then she, then she told me I didn't know anything about television that I could leave. So I left, I left her office and I was really, you know, she, she had just dumped a truckload of cold water all over me, but you know, I figured she was wrong. That's all. That's, it wasn't about me at that point. It was just like, oh, come on. Somebody's going to start a comedy network. Yeah. So I just went back to my office. I wrote it up. I was going to staple it to my resume, send it to the MTV Networks guys or CBS or somebody else and see if they wanted to hire me and, and uh, talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but my boss's boss caught me doing it. And he thought it was cool. And he said, come on, let's go see the chairman. We went to see the chairman of HBO right then. It wasn't like we'll go in a couple of weeks. He said, come on, we're going right now. I had no presentation materials. I had no prep. I just walked in. He said, tell Michael, it was Michael Fuchs as the chairman. He said, tell Michael what you think that, you know, we should start. And I told him and I pitched it with all the passion I had in me. You know, I just really pitched my heart out. And 15 minutes later, he said, yeah, it sounds kind of cool. Maybe we should. Yeah, let's look into this. Hmm. And that was the start of it. You know, he he said, let's let's look into it. and." We did, and then we ended up launching. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, 
crazy story, especially when you read it in, in the book and you go into all the little details and see what, everything that led up to it. And I guess the question I really wanted to ask was, you know, like you said, you worked at HBO and this was back in the mid mid eighties when mm-hmm. cable TV was really kind of starting to to blow up. And when I read it, I like, I was kind of picturing almost like Silicon Valley where how, how they had like their whole nexus and how everybody was kind of developing, you know, laying the, the groundwork for the future. And like HBO was a, such a big part of the future of what cable TV would become. And all these other channels, like you mentioned, were popping up that were dedicated to like specific topics. And I guess what was it like being a part of, I guess, sort of like the golden age of cable TV? And like, did you realize that you were like in that moment at that time and like where things were were headed? Yeah, I got to say I did. When I got to HBO, I had never seen anything like that place. I mean, there were probably about a thousand people working there then. But they were walking around the halls, high-fiving, saying, man, we are the future of television. And you think I'm kidding? I mean, they were really excited about what they were doing. And uh, there was just this vibe there constantly, this vibration that we were going to change. We were changing television every day. And the other thing is they were so phenomenally successful. I mean, Mm. it was they went up in the satellite in 1976, say, is when they started by the mid eighties, they had like 30 million subscribers or whatever it was, 20 million subscribers. They were just like making money hand over fist and they were owned by Time Time Inc., you know, Time Warner. And uh, I think the guys at Time Warner couldn't believe their good luck because they were, they were just throwing money at these guys. And it was really crazy. But, you know, you mentioned the golden age of television, cable television, television generally. Um, the programming now is so cool. I mean, yeah. you know, with everything that's going on in Netflix and Amazon, I think from a, I, I think from a programming point of view, we're so far ahead. Remember HBO got to where it got by the mid eighties by showing mostly uncut movies. I think that was where they started yeah. and what they added to it, they would do some specials and uh, importantly, they were doing comedy specials. And I think yeah. that was the second thing that really kind of kicked in and nailed the reputation and made them a must have in America because they were doing comedy specials and they were really the only ones who could do Robin Williams live and, you know, uncut his entire mm. act. You couldn't see Robin Williams on television doing that anywhere else. Yeah, no. You, know, you had to go I've to a club. I've seen that. I didn't know he talked like that. Eddie <laughs> Murphy, you know, Eddie Murphy, there's no way you could do. <laughs> All of those guys, you yeah. know, Whoopi, man, when her, I saw her, man, and Robert Klein, all those guys did specials. The big guys did specials. And um, it really made, uh, it helped make HBO's reputation. And again, when I went and pitched Comedy Channel, I said, how can you guys, you guys are, you guys are comedy on yeah. the dial right now. You're going to let somebody else come along and take it away from you? That was one of the things I said. I think that scared them more than anything else. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad they did. But that was... That was working at HBO was electric. That's all I can say. It was electric, and a lot of people who worked at HBO went on to you know the big, big things, things you know, big things. So yeah, uh, I mean that was definitely a point for me. It was HBO being right there at the launch and kind of how it was building because, like you said, it did become kind of the nexus point for all comedians. If you made it an HBO special, you made it basically at that time. Like especially in the nineties and when it, when we were growing up, like that was the big moment that was getting an HBO special. 
So they were known for comedy and the fact that you pitched this, that you started this idea without them seeing the foresight, I think really just shows how, you know, an idea could come from anywhere because even though they had all these comedians and they had all this comedic comedy background, they didn't see the bigger picture like you did. I, I definitely did see the bigger picture. And let me tell you one of the things I saw in the bigger picture, despite the fact that HBO was running these comedy specials, they were very highly produced. They were beautiful. You know, um, there was another channel on the dial that was running a lot of comedy. It was A&E mm-hmm. and they were running a show called A&E at the improv. And it was a half hour every night at 7.30, right? And that thing just hung there like a fog until everybody knew about it. And what it was is they had, I think they put two cameras against a brick wall at the improv in LA. And they had a steady stream of guys coming up doing 10 minutes, you know? I mean, hundreds and hundreds of comedians would go through that thing doing 10 minutes. And so they had, basically they had the other comedy franchise in cable which was completely ridiculous when you think about it. Like, yeah. what, did, what were they doing in comedy? Yeah. But also, that was another thing. I said, now, why would HBO let A&E be the other guys in comedy? There shouldn't be other guys in comedy unless it's HBO. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that was, another, that was another thing I had my eye on. Actually, truth be told, when we started the comedy channel at HBO, I said, let's go buy all that A&E footage. <laughs> I mean, you could buy that stuff by the pound in those days. And, and the, uh, the guy actually sold it to us. He owned all the footage and he owned all the rights to it. Um, and, uh, and that was very helpful to us. Because honestly, you could, look at, you could look at A&E at the Improv 30, 40 years ago and see almost every comic who made it after, after that 10, 10, 15 years later. Everybody went through there. So it was very, it was very helpful having that stuff. But anyway, yeah, that's how we got started. That's how we got started. Hmm. And I guess, um, you know, that's one of my questions was after reading the book and seeing how your thoughts on how people were like, how your interactions with people, particularly with people who were known for being in comedy, didn't feel like they gave you the most like respect, uh, when you were trying to give advice about starting a comedy channel, it was always kind of sarcastic, you know, responses or like, yeah, good luck with that. Or, uh, okay. Yeah. Like, what do you know about comedy type things and, and, and whatnot, particularly if, you know, people that you had to work with like, uh, Stu and, and Eddie from the book. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, talk about unexpected, uh, consequences of, of, uh, of something. I, I figured I was doing everybody a favor by, you know, introducing the idea and talking about how it would be done and why it would be good and what we should do. Um, so immediately I'm teamed up with Stu Smiley. You mentioned Stu. Stu was the head of HBO programming. Now, Stu had been in the comedy business. I'm sorry, the HP, he was head of HBO comedy programming, right? So he knew all the comedians. He knew all their agents. He knew the business. He knew what things cost. He knew where to find people. What did I know? You know, I knew that I liked comedy and I had this, big, you know, idea and everything. So almost immediately, I would say from the minute he met me, Stu was like, what do you know about comedy? And he must have said it to me a hundred times. And he also said, hey, there he is, the, the guy with the big idea. Yeah, that was one. That was- you know? <laughs> and what I quickly learned was, number one, comedy was like a pretty, it was like a club, you know. You it's had a boys to club. The club. Yeah, it was a, well, certainly a boys club. 
uh, back then. But you had to get, you had to be in the club. And man, I was not in the club. I wasn't a performer. I wasn't a writer. And I, you know, I hadn't been in the business. Um, and not only that, but it became quickly apparent that I was going to have to teach myself anything I learned about comedy because <laughs> these guys, yeah, weren't no. the, <laughs> these guys weren't rooting for me. You know what I'm saying? They weren't going to be real helpful. And I, I do want to make it, make it clear. It wasn't like Stu was a bad guy. He it, it, that was just like the general attitude of the comedy business, you know? Yeah. It was like, you know, so who's this guy? And Eddie Gordetsky you mentioned him. He was the head writer on the channel. <laughs> he was just brutal. He just he just said, "Man, I should be doing your job." Said, yeah, there was actually an uh, an excerpt an excerpt from the book that I, I wanted to read because I thought it was kind of a epitome of what what, what we're discussing right now. Um, I'm just gonna read it right now. Uh, immediately, Eddie started in on me. What do you know about comedy? When I didn't answer, I thought it was a rhetorical question. His meaty hand poked my chest, and he raised his sandpaper voice. What do you know about comedy? I wanted to get up and leave, but Eddie had been itching to have it out with me for a while. Let's get this over with, I thought. What do you want me to say, Eddie? I said, I'm stuck for a line here. Admit I'm right. Admit you don't know shit about comedy. I admit it, okay? Compared to you, I don't know shit about comedy. And admit the channel sucks. I winced. He was right. And I just thought that, that, that part from the book was great. Like, it was just kind of, you know, I was like, okay. Yeah, that was that was a, a moment, man. We, it was a couple of months after we launched. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to make clear in the book was that Comedy Central uh, or Comedy Channel, as it was known then, was not shot out of a cannon as a success. Mm-hmm. The first year, I thought they were going to shut us down every day when I went to work. I mean, I, I would go to work saying, okay, today's the day. They're going to call me up. They're going to say it's over. It's not working. Shut it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the people, Eddie was one of them. I think they were slightly embarrassed about the whole thing, you know, because these guys, they had been successful in the world of comedy and HBO with all this money and clout and reputation, they were going to do a comedy network and everybody like the whole world went, Oh yeah, let's check it out. You know? And we launched and it was like, <laughs> and why shouldn't it have been, you know, you think about starting up anything. Is it always, you know, exactly what it's supposed to be on day one? No. I mean, the thing about having a channel and I, I immediately recognized this was tomorrow's another day. We can change things. We can, we can make things that aren't working go away. We can add things that maybe if they're working, we can add more of those. And that's what I started doing, despite the fact that some people were like, you know, in the bunker like this, you know? Yeah. I think Eddie was really, he was one of the guys who was really like, this isn't working and I know how to make it work. I mean, meaning he knew how to make it work and art doesn't. And so um, that's why there was that kind of tension there. And it was, it was difficult. It was difficult for him too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you persevered and you got to work with, you know, a lot of great, comedians that are big now, like uh, John Stewart, for example, I think it was a uh, short attention span theater. I think that was the, the show. Yeah. Yeah. John, John yeah was so one of those like forward thinking ahead of their time kind of things too, that, that John Stewart. Yeah, that's been pointed out to me. Yeah. We were showing clips from movies and, and, uh, and series, funny clips. And John was the host of that. Um, and he, at the time, I guess, you know, now, Everybody puts up their favorite funny clip from a movie on on YouTube. Somebody somebody pointed out to me, hey, that's what we were doing back then. Um, yeah. 
But John, who was a, a very new comic, I mean, he, I think he had been on a young comedian special on HBO, which is how we knew he was around, but he was not really working much. And we, um, we snagged him and he, as soon as I saw him on TV, as soon as I saw him on short attention span theater, I knew he was great. I knew, I just knew because not only was he funny, but he was like, you could tell he was like sensitive and empathetic uh, and, and cared about what he was doing and wanted to do a good job and, and wanted to connect with the audience in lots of different ways, other than just being funny, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, it really came through. Um, So yeah, one of, one of, one of the good moments in early comedy central history was finding, uh, Finding John Stewart. Stewart. Yeah. Now he left. He went, you know, we became Comedy Central and Short Attention Span Theater was on Comedy Central. Um, and, and John was still the host, but he left to go to MTV. And that was typical in those days. Whenever we found somebody who was good, somebody, you know, MTV, <laughs> MTV came along had the money. Hey. I would like to make twice as much, you know, yeah. you like, the audience. Uh, so uh, a lot of talent kind of came and went, but notably, John Stewart in a few years came back uh, and we stayed, we stayed close to him. Um, meaning, you know, he did some work for us along the way while he was at MTV. Uh, and that was a good thing. He's a, he was really, he is a really nice guy. Great guy. I enjoyed hanging around with him when I did. Getting to know him. Yeah. I wanted to, you know, he is known for being empathetic and, you know, being able to connect on a deeper level. Um, I think like last year or maybe it was this year when he was, well, he's been doing this for years. He's been advocating for, you know, nine, 9-11 uh, firefighters in Congress and stuff like that. And you and you really get to see that side of him. And there was an excerpt from the book that like made me think about, oh, this is who he's always been. And I kind of want to read that too. Um, and this, to kind of preface this, this was, this was him when I believe you guys fired his co-host and he yeah. was making a stand about, you know, I'm going to leave with her. And, This is what he said. Uh, We took a cab to the studio and found John in the conference room waiting for us. He got right to the point. You can't do this. He said, clearly upset and almost shouting. You can't just fire Patty without even talking to me about it. We're partners. We've been working together for three months. It's outrageous. I didn't say anything for a few seconds. John continued. I'm quitting. If Patty goes, I go. Before this, my experience with comedians was that they were in it for themselves, mostly. And I understood that. Comedy was a tough business and comedians had to spend a lot of time and energy looking out for themselves. I never imagined anyone would get would get indignant over the fate of a, of a fellow performer. But here was Jon Stewart, a young, relatively unknown comedian, taking a stand for his partner. And like that was just kind of like, wow, like even young and, un, you know, unknown and didn't have any real clout or pull to say and like he was already kind of showing who he really was and like who he would become to be come to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. You saw it all there. I, I did. I'll tell you one interesting well, kind of a funny story about John. It's not in the book. You know, I said he was a great guy and we, we kept in touch a little bit, but you know, I went on to other things and he was, uh, he was, he got real famous doing the daily show. Um, and so I was in, uh, I was in the city with my family and we were having brunch and John walks up, he walks by, you know, and he's there too, right? And he had to talk to someone. I, so I, I didn't want to make a big scene. So I just said, hey, John, it's Art Bell, you know, nice to see you. And he was like, hey, great to see you, Art, great to see you. And um, he was so nice to me. And I said, I said, let me introduce my family. And I introduced him, you know, my, my wife and my two kids. And he's like, hey, hey, great to see you. And um, 
we sat down, we had breakfast, John left. He said goodbye before he left, you know, great to see me. And then later we got out of the restaurant. I said to my kids who were, I think it was from 12 or 10 around there. I said, hey, so what'd you think of John Stewart? And they said, that was John Stewart? <laughs> Why didn't you tell us that was John Stewart? You just said that was your friend John. We didn't know who it was. <laughs> that was my friend John. Oh. And they never forgave me for that. You know? <laughs> they just thought he was some, you know, some guy I knew. <laughs> Very funny. Very funny. It's like, oh hi, nice to meet you, sir. Mr. Yeah. John. Like, well, he, you know, he had his hat down and his beard, you know, so he, right. he wouldn't be recognized on a Sunday morning. It's funny. That's anyway, so funny. that's the kind of guy I was. Great guy. Yeah, it's always great to see, you know, guess comedy heroes, people that you look up to kind of be those good, the good person that they portrayed themselves to yeah. be. Like, that's, it's always nice to see that. You don't always see that. Um, you don't. And uh, like you said, when you first started, uh, well, when you first started, it was called the Comedy Channel. And right. your competitor was MTV and they had their own. It was called Ha. Uh, ha Comedy or something like that, and Ha uh, the Comedy Network. Ha uh, the Comedy Network. That's what it was. And you guys had a you know intense back and forth uh, going back, and then I guess eventually you guys merged and into Comedy Central into what it is, what it is now. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, one of my early lessons, and that was it, was never underestimate the competition. You know, I walked into this and. HBO didn't want to do a comedy network. Like, so there's no comedy networks in the world. Nobody's really up to anything. We start working on it. We work it for about three or four months. And then we made an announcement. We had a big breakfast in LA comedians and Michael Fuchs, the head of HBO, who, by the way, at the time was considered the most powerful man in Hollywood. You know, I mean, this is the kind of guy, if I got in the elevator with him, I broke into a sweat, you know, <laughs> he was like the real deal. Anyway, he makes this giant announcement about the comedy how great comedy channel was going to be, you know, before we launched. And I'm thinking, Oh man, I hope this works because <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. He's putting us, he's putting <laughs> us right on the line. But the interesting thing is I fly back from LA, right. The next day. And I get back and MTV networks has just put out a press release. And the press release says, we're going to start a comedy network too. This was one day later. And here's the name of it. And here's what, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, man, are you kidding me? It's obvious what happened. They just didn't want to let, you know, suddenly they they said, oh, my gosh, maybe we're missing an opportunity. We better just get in there. So right. uh, they did. They launched six months after we did. And uh, and then we we went head to head for six months and the, they called it the comedy wars. The press was having the time of their lives, like, you know, Hollywood Reporter and Variety and, and Rolling Stone did a big article on it. And they were they were just tickled pink, you know, because here were these two huge companies going head to head with these comedy networks, both of which weren't very good at the time. <laughs> they had just launched. I mean, I thought our actually, you know, look, with, with all due respect to our effort, we were getting better. You know, I mean, we started out kind of crappy, but we were really getting better. And suddenly we got an audience and suddenly we got programming that people want to watch. Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah, that was a big one. Almost instantly got noticed as an innovative piece of television comedy that wouldn't have showed up anywhere else if it weren't for Comedy Channel, right? I mean, it wasn't right. going to NBC, wasn't no. going to HBO, right? Nobody would put that on. But we put it on and suddenly the thing's like a cult hit and let me tell you, we were waving that around the first six months saying, you know, if you think there's nothing here, check this out. Yeah. Um, and we had some other stuff, too. You know, we again, we we were putting stuff on. But 
you know, that's what the early months were like. It was just, you know, hoping we'd get through it. And I, I thought by the end of the year, it was around December, by the end of the year, after fighting with these guys for six months, that we were winning. We had better ratings. We had a bigger audience. We had, you know, I thought we had more buzz and better programming. And then I get a phone call. We're merging. And that wasn't my idea, as you can imagine. That was <laughs> the guys at the top, you know, the head of HBO and the head of Viacom got together and said, look, we're just going to kill each other and there'll be no comedy networks. Why don't we just merge them? And they said, okay, let's merge them. And that's mm. what they did. And they fired a lot of people on both sides and they threw me and the head of programming from Ha, the other comedy network, um, in a room and said, uh, you guys figured out what you need, what you're going to do, what you're going to call it. We weren't allowed to call it Comedy Channel or Ha. We had to come up with a new name. And uh, I tell that story in the book too. Um, but we did it. Um, we, we figured it out. And it was almost harder doing the merger than it was doing the original launch. Because you had two completely different groups of people, two different cultures, two different, basically, senses of humor, you know, yeah. that they were bringing to the original efforts. And we had to figure out where we were going to meet. Were we going to meet in the middle or one side or the other? What were we going to do? The good news is all those guys from Ha, by the time we merged, they were as committed to seeing a comedy network succeed as we were. So it worked. And uh, another thing I didn't put in the book that I'll say here is that there were a lot of whispers by the guys who put the merger together that Comedy Channel, Comedy Central rather, was not going to last a year, that it just was going to go down. Um, but we were, I was hell bent on making sure that didn't happen. I worked very hard to make sure that it succeeded. So did everybody else. Yeah. And you like I said, you go in great, great, going to great depth about the, the merger and, and everything that happened in the book. And, and, you know, the cards are really stacked against you guys. And like you said, um, the naming was a big part of, you know, how like the biggest obstacle probably at the beginning was coming up with the name. And there's a very good, like interesting, funny story about how comedy central, the name actually came to be. And I don't want to talk about that specifically because I think people should read that for themselves. But I did want to talk about, you know, one of the uh, other names that was thrown out there. And I wanted to read a, a passage from there. Yeah. Okay. Comedy may not be the comedy may not be the focus of the channel forever, but I take your point. Let's look at some names. And I think I'll see and I think you'll see that they say comedy and all the other things I talked about without using the word. With that, Fred placed a slide on the overhead projector. It had one word on it. Big. Fred said with pride and finality, big. Big what, Bob asked. Just big. He went on to praise the name big as perfect for a channel, explaining that it had balls, chutzpah, gravitas. It makes a statement and it says, and it says what you want to be, big. He looked around and saw that despite his enthusiasm, this name wasn't giving anyone chills or palpitations. Undaunted, he removed the big slide without further comment and put up the next one. This too had one word on it, Acme. <laughs> so I just, thought it was, <laughs> I just thought it was really funny because th these are terrible names and it would have been a real tragedy if these two channels were named either Big or Acme instead of you know just a <laughs> simple genius name that Comedy Central came to be. And it's always very interesting to see, you know, the thought process of how, behind like how these things come to be and specifically how they come to be named. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We, you know, obviously paid those guys a lot of money to help us come up with the name. 
And before you get too enthusiastic about tearing them apart, you know, that was Fred, Fred Seibert, who's a very, very smart, creative, influential guy. He went on to run the comedy network, com, I'm sorry, the cartoon network. Uh, and he also made a lot of cartoons, you know, a lot of animated programs that everybody knows. He's, and he's, he's just a brilliant, very creative guy. I, I, so I, I didn't really want to make fun of him as, as much as to show that like everybody can make missteps all yeah. the time. And, and one of the things we talked about was like, oh my God, if we, if we don't name it one of these things, maybe Fred's going to be mad. And the thing is we were hiring him. So what were we worried about him being mad for? But he was like a big, he was a really big deal. He was a really big deal. Yeah. Uh, look, everybody has missteps, but I, I have to say Comedy Central is a much better name than, yeah. than Big or Acme, for sure. Yeah, we, we, we determined that, yeah. And it was it was accidental because, um, actually, I will say this. I will say this for Fred. Fred said at the beginning of the meeting, he said, okay, so here's the thing. You guys want to be like the center of the comedy universe. That's what you told me. And I said, yeah, that's what we told you. And he says, okay, so, so you want to be Comedy Central, but you don't want to call it that. And I said, why not? He said, <laughs> Two on the nose. I said, oh, all right. So <laughs> pretty much came up with the name and then mixed it. You know? <laughs> Whatever you do, don't call it Comedy Central. It was funny. He probably, you know, thought of that like almost. It could have been like in that moment that he thought of, you know, Comedy Central without even really thinking about it, you know. Yeah, true. Well, I was I personally I wanted to call it Comedy Channel because. What else do you call a channel that's about comedy? It's a comedy yeah. channel. I mean, it made sense. But, but that cool. was that was off the table. So, and I wanted to talk about um, kind of forcing the rise of political uh, comedy, like how big it's become, particularly with you know signing Bill Maher and uh, having things like State of the Union undressed. You were a big part of um, you know why these things came to be, and I just want to say like, how did you kind of foresee? political comedy being such a big thing for the network and for the future of comedy in general? Well, I, I will say this. I, it's, it's hard to take credit for political comedy um, because political comedy was a big part of the comedy landscape in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I mean, um, these may not be names that you know, but Mort Saul was a comedian. He was a political comic in the 60s. who was very well-known, very famous. Um, and there were there were plenty of political comics around, you know, just really doing some pretty heavy stuff about politics. They were stand-up comics. And then there were some shows, you know, that were sort of vaguely politically funny oriented on, you know, around, but, you know, nothing like what we had been doing. But the whole idea of doing political comedy or doing comedy about politics or current events, well, that wasn't ours. We knew we had to get into it. And the question was, what are we going to do that's different, you know? Um, so the first thing we did, really, uh, and you mentioned uh, Bill Maher, politically incorrect. He he came to us. Uh, he actually pitched me and, and uh, somebody else, uh, the guy I was working with, a guy named Mitch Semmel. He pitched us in a diner, and he said, look, I want to do a talk show about real issues, and I want to do a talk show where people actually talk about real issues, and not just about their movie or their book or the other things people talk about on a talk show. Um, I want to get into the issues. I want to put people on the spot. I want to go up to the line. I want to cross the line and get into trouble. Mm -hmm. And I want to call it politically incorrect. And that's what it's going to be. 
And we bought the thing on the spot. We just said, yeah, great. <laughs> you know, because nobody was doing that at the time. That was just not going on anywhere. Uh, we didn't know too much about Bill Moore, but again, we were young and crazy. We didn't, we didn't even know if we had enough money to do that show. But right. we said yes. And uh, we put Bill on the air. And once again, you know, I will say the first six months of his show was, I wouldn't say a disaster, but, you know, it was good. Uh, but he found his footing, you know, he found a producer he liked to work with and, and it became really good, you know, and then of course the rest is pretty much history. I mean, Bill Moore has been doing a version of that show for his entire you know, career. It's all I've ever known Mass, basically. Yeah. Sorry. It's, it's basically all I've ever known him as is, is that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I, he hadn't done much before he had, he was a stand-up comedy. He'd done a movie and, um, but he was, he was not really known before. And, the fact of the matter is, it's amazing that he's made this his career. He did get he did get in a lot of trouble a couple of times. He got fired. They they went he went to ABC, I think. They stole him uh away from uh Comedy Central. As I said, they anybody good, you know, they took him away. Um and then he got fired there because he screwed something up and the advertisers got really upset. So he went to HBO. They rescued him. Mm. And I guess, you know, the State of the Union address, that was that was something that never had really been done. You had to do pull a lot of strings to get that live feed of the State of the Union so that you could kind of, you know, talk about it, but in, a, in an irreverent way and the only way that Comedy Central would. Yeah, we, you got to you got to remember, this was like in the early 90s and um, Comedy Central was like the upstart wise guy, you yeah. know, it's like. The other channels didn't really think that much of us, not that they, not that it mattered that much most of the time, but we had this idea that we would cover the state of the union address that the president gave, he gives it once a year to Congress. We would cover it live and we'd have comedians in front of the screen, you know, commenting on the president's state of the union address live while he was giving it. And everybody's like, yeah, that sounds great, you know? So we said, okay, now we just have to go get the feed, you know, because there's, we have to be one of the television channels that's allowed to show it. And we were pretty stupid. So we thought anybody could, you know, all you had to do is raise your hand and you'd get it. Uh-uh. Um, it turns out that one channel, and I think it was CNN, was allowed to be the guys covering it. And they were allowed to tell who got the feed. And basically the rule was if you were a bona fide news organization, like, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, those guys, Fox, any real news organization got the feed, no questions asked. And so we walk in as Comedy Central say, uh, yeah, we want the feed too. And it was like, no, <laughs> cannot have the feed. <laughs> what are you crazy? Um, and that was a bigger fight than I expected it to be. I don't actually, I think I say this in the book, I don't actually know who came to our rescue. I think some Somebody somewhere at the top of some monolithic entertainment company uh, said, just give them the feed, you know, just just do it. And CNN said, OK, we'll give them the feed. But it, it wasn't CNN who said, we'll give you the feed. Everybody was against it there and everybody was against it through the rest of the news industry. They didn't want to see it made fun of. Yeah. Anyway. We did it. Al Franken was the first guy to do it. He was the first comedian. You know, Al Franken went on. He is a senator, right? He, he became a senator. He yeah. was a writer and performer at Saturday Night Live at the time. Yeah. 
So we were lucky to get him. And we had worked with him a little bit on some other stuff. So uh, it was really fun. It was really, and I will say that was a benchmark. You know, that was really kind of a moment for me because the next, you know, the next day the reviews came out on that thing and, and people suddenly said, you know, we were getting like, hey, these guys at comedy are really kind of doing some interesting stuff. Now, people had said that before, but this was kind of like a little breakthrough for us. And we were really proud. And that's what started us on our way to, to doing, you know, we covered the Republican and the Democratic conventions. That, and we also covered, um, you know, every year the State of the Union Address, some other stuff. John Stewart, by the way, was involved in that early stuff as well hmm. um, for us. And that, you know, you can draw a direct line from that to The Daily Show. So that's how it happened. Yeah. And like I said, you guys weren't the first for political comedy, but when I was saying the rise of political comedy, I was mentioning like kind of like this stuff, this, this kind of got the younger generation kind of to pay attention to politics in a way that they never would have before that. I never would have before like the daily show and Colbert report that got me actually watching, you know, social commentary and, and social issues that were happening in a way that, you wouldn't turn to a news channel as a kid and and just sit there and watch it. I think of all the accomplishments of Comedy Central, that has to rank as one of the top. Yeah. And it was a little bit unexpected. I mean, yeah. the idea that we were going to do um, political comedy uh, seemed obvious in so many ways. But what happened, which is the younger generation suddenly tuned in with interest yeah. and started reporting almost immediately that they got most of their news from John Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that was like, um, and you know, I left around that time or shortly thereafter, but that was the big surprise to everybody that that that's what, uh, that's what it turned into. What happened. Um, And you know what? You got to hand this to John Stewart. Uh, He was, I got, you got to say he was like, he was so much of the success of that. And so much of the reason that that show worked that way, you know, um, at the beginning. Uh, so handed, you know, credit him. Cause I yeah, it was brilliant. I thought it was definitely, like you said, one of the benchmark moments to be able to reach the younger generation like that in a way that so unexpected. Yeah. yeah. Then there was also a Dennis Miller situation that you talk about uh, in the book also. Yeah. He takes his chance at state of the union undressed with Bill Clinton and this one runs a little bit long and he has some issues that happen. <laughs> yeah. And the issue was, uh, since it went long, he had to go to the bathroom and he was the only guy on screen and he couldn't really just leave <laughs> to go to the bathroom. So it was live and you got to love live television or live everything, you know, <laughs> live radio. And I, I spent a little time in the book going through some of the crazy stuff that happened through the years in live television. Uh, Cause a lot of crazy stuff would happen, but that was the crazy stuff that happened when I was there. Um, and I was at the, I was physically there and Dennis Miller came out. <laughs> he left the studio and he had his mic on, but he, he had to go to the bathroom and there was no bathroom nearby. So he, <laughs> he just went into the, uh, into a nearby garbage can that was in the hallway and then went back and did the rest of the state of the union address. It was one of the, it was one of the most unpredictable uh, great moments of Comedy Central history, I think. And the funny part, the really funny part was it was it was not unnoticed by the audience, but nobody like 
Nobody said, oh, my God, you know, what's he doing? It was just kind of like, oh, yeah, this is Comedy Central. This kind of stuff. <laughs> that must be a bit, yeah. But, but the thing is, Dennis came running out afterwards thinking he killed his career. I mean, he was really yeah. distraught. And he came out and he ran into the bathroom. And, you know, I tell the whole story. Um, uh, of course, he didn't kill his career. And uh, it was all fine. But, you know, so many crazy things happened at Comedy Central when I was there. Uh, and one of the things I like to do in the I wanted to do in the book was talk about them and talk about, despite the fact that it was very hard to get that thing up and running and it was a lot of work and it was a lot of, um, and, and it took a lot. We had so much fun. So some of the time we, we just, another story I don't tell in the book. And I was just re reminiscing with the guy who was the head of ad sales. Uh, his name is Larry Divney. I remembered getting into the car with Larry, it was probably just after we'd done the State of the Union address and we were going to like a, the airport to go to a conference or something. And it was just the two of us in the back of this car. There was a driver, you know, and we sat there and nobody said anything for a while. And then Larry turned to me and he said, aren't we having the greatest time? And we both started cracking up like school kids, you know, like high-fiving because we couldn't believe how much fun we were having yeah. on this panel, you know, at that time. And he said to me recently, when we were reminiscing, and I'm talking to like two weeks ago, he said, yeah, that was the best job I ever had. It was the most fun I ever had. And uh, that made me feel good. It made me feel good. Not that it wasn't for me, but just the fact that other people found it so trans transformative for them in their careers. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I guess later on in, the, in your career and later on in Comedy Central, you get moved to marketing. And this is something that you've never really had any experience in before. And they kind of just say, oh, it can't be that hard. You'll figure it out, you know, just kind of throw you into it. And, you know, you had some some tough situations, but you did manage to come out with some huge moments and some huge successes that still resonate today. And I guess before we move on, I, I wanted to ask, like, is Bill Maher? really that much of a dick because he always kind of seems <laughs> like I've always thought he was kind of a pompous ass, like even on TV and then to read about him in the book, he always, he seems kind of like a dick a little bit. Well, you know, yes. But the, the thing is, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't really want to say it that way. He is like, you know, some other entertainers or, or people who are in positions like that. He's, he can be very hard to deal with. And he has been very hard to deal with for other people. Now, what happens with entertainers like that is they find someone who can communicate with them and work for work yeah. with them. And he was lucky. You remember I said he found a producer. Yeah. He found a producer. Um, and naturally, I'm going to forget his name, but he uh, was is a great producer. And this guy just was able to work with Bill Maher in a way that nobody else could. Because Bill would like take everybody apart except this guy, he'd listen to this guy, tell him what to do and how to do it. I was not on the list of people who he would listen to. <laughs> no, you weren't. Uh, no, you weren't, because I wanted to read this excerpt uh, about a situation. You created this whole marketing campaign for Politically Incorrect to, you know, to get it, excitement for the show. And he kind of, you got a call from him and I wanted to read that excerpt because I thought it was one of the best excerpts from the book. Um, I could just fall into an orgy of apology, beg Bill to forgive me and swear that I'd never try a lame brain stunt like this again. Or I could stand up to him, defend our ad campaign and tell him to get back to making his show. I decided to start with the orgy. Bill, you're probably right. I should have. He interrupted. If you think this is good advertising, 
then you obviously don't know what the fuck you're doing. I think I do my job well, but if I fucked up, my show would be canceled, right? And if you fuck up, I think you should be fired. Doesn't that sound fair? Um, Bill, I don't think I'm letting you know that I've already made some calls and I'm trying to get you fired. Did I hear him right? As if responding to my thought, he said, that's right, Art. I'm working on getting you fired and I won't be sorry to see you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, You know, they say that you remember bad things that happened to you more clearly than good things that happened to you. And as I was writing the memoir, you know, it's a memoir. So it's basically how I remember things for the most part. Uh, didn't do a lot of research. That was one of the conversations that I remember in my own mind, word for word. I mean, I, I think I got it down exactly as it happened because it was so astonishingly horrifying at the time. Yeah. You gotta remember, I was new to marketing. This was the first big thing I did. And this guy was a big deal on our channel. Not that I was nobody, but, you know. Also a guy that you helped get the show for it. Just, well, there is that, you know, but that lasts about 30 seconds. Right? I mean, that, that was a funny thing. I mean, after I met him, I thought he was so nice at the diner, you know, he was pitching us and everything. I think, hey, maybe I'll be pals with this guy, you know. Um, we weren't pals. But but he came flying at me. And again, one thing that you, you sort of mentioned in that was that I did take a little bit of um, personal responsibility. I didn't want to run the campaign by him. So I ran, I ran it by his producer. Scott Carter, his name is. I, I, I can't believe I forgot. He's a terrific, terrific guy. Uh, anyway, I ran it by Scott. I ran it by, you know, the head of pro, the guy who took over as head of programming. Um, and everybody was like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's cool. Let's do it. You know, but I didn't run it by Bill. And the reason is because what do you think Bill would have said? He'd say, stop the presses, right? I don't care what you're doing. That's not going on. I mean, it would have just killed the whole thing. Yeah. And I didn't want to start all over because it would have all gone out the window. So I did take a little responsibility saying, man, eh, maybe I should have showed him. But uh, that's what happened. <laughs> I didn't get fired. He did not get me fired. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes you don't work with creatives. Something that we have to do a lot with our, our, with our stuff is sometimes you have to kind of make those decisions that you think are in their best interest, even if they might not see it at the time. Because later on, it turns out that you actually won an award, a marketing award for this exact ad campaign. And he was the presenter of the night to present the yeah, award you know, to you guys. People have accused me of making that up. It, was just, <laughs> it sounds like a movie for sure. You know what? If I wrote it into a script, they'd say, you got to take this out. because <laughs> Nobody's going to believe that. Yeah, like, <laughs> It's totally unbelievable. But, just, um, that's what happened. Yeah. He was the presenter of the awards and we won for his campaign. And they, they walked by with a big billboard of his campaign. And he was like, I just, it was one of, one of the great moments in my, of my marketing career. I have to say. <laughs> yeah. It was definitely a highlight of the book. And I mean, it just continue to show that you were always kind of thrown into these new situations where you had to learn and adapt and, and, you know, just kind of learn new skills and learn how to do things over and over again. And and even though this was something that you were new at, you did come up with some very successful, you know, campaigns. There was um, the contract with America where you took out a whole page ad in New York and the New York Times. Yeah. And then you also you did uh, the tagline for Comedy Central when it first started. The whole right. we're all going to die. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I, I um, 
let me let me say it this way. When, when I first started with comedy, I had to kind of be a jack of all trades anyway, you know, because I was I was always looked to as like, all right, so what are we doing here? Um, so I always felt like I was really a, in charge of the thing, even though I wasn't literally in charge. But I really had to think about about programming and marketing because you're putting on a show, you got to get people to watch it, uh, and on air promotion, which I love. I mean, the whole. Uh, that whole making commercials for yourself on TV is so much fun and so interesting. But I learned all that stuff sort of on the fly and I had to find people to teach me. And I did uh, luckily in marketing. So, cause when they first put me into marketing, I was, I was a little upset that I was out of programming. I worked so hard to get in there. Right. Um, but then I also realized, okay, well, this may be an opportunity to learn some new stuff. And I found a guy to teach me uh, about advertising and marketing. And, you know, again, I was the head of the department, which is kind of a funny place to walk in. Once again, everybody who worked for me knew a hell of a lot more about marketing than I did because they'd been working on it in it for years. The good news was I was the boss this time. So they couldn't say, what do you know about marketing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so they uh, they were helpful, you know, and we, uh, we got a lot of good stuff done. And I learned a lot about marketing. And let me tell you something. I went on um to work at some other channels and one of the things i found is that everything you do before everything you learn about before and i mean anything in your job any job you ever had is useful to you in whatever you're doing i mean you you know you find a way to make it useful it becomes apparent that knowing both programming and marketing put me in a great position to run run things, you know, and I became president of Core TV. And I, the whole, the whole idea of putting on a show without marketing, I realized was the stupidest idea in the whole world. You couldn't do it. You had to, you could have the best show in the world. If nobody knew about it, they wouldn't watch it. So it really kind of trained me in television in how to, in television in those days, especially how to, how to get yourself out there, how to get your stuff, your programming out there. Um, and I'm glad, you know, I'm glad somebody made that decision, even though at the moment they made it, I was feeling pretty low. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, you come up, with, it worked out because you were mad. You managed to come up with a lot of great, you know, iconic slogans and campaigns for Comedy Central. And like, we're all going to die is, I think is one of the most iconic ad campaigns for any channel. And I'm not even sure if I, I'm not even sure if I was like born yet when it first came out, but even I know about it. It was just that, you know, that big in, in marketing and everything. So it all yeah, worked we, out. We, we did a lot of, we did a lot of breakthrough stuff. And remember I, I, uh, I grew up with, I don't know if you know this national lampoon. Does that mean anything? Yep. To you? Yeah. yeah. National lampoon had a magazine when I was a kid, when I was in high school and they tried to bring it back a couple of times, but the guy who was responsible for it was a guy named Doug Kenny. He was probably one of the great comic geniuses ever. Um, and he died young, unfortunately. But they put out like, I don't know, a dozen of these issues or two dozen. Some of the greatest written satire comedy ever. And Belushi wrote for it. Chevy Chase wrote for it, all those guys, you know, they that's where they started. You know, they started writing this stuff for National Lampoon. And they, they were my heroes when I was in high school. And, uh, and I thought a lot about them when we were putting Comedy Central together, because I thought they at the time were the center of the comedy universe. I thought they were like where all the best comedy was going and all the best comedians came out of, you know, and then they did records and they did shows and all that stuff. 
it was very influential for me. And um, so I, I was I was proud to be coming up or being part of, you know, what was now now in the 90s, kind of that that powerful a comedy yeah. uh, entity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you basically like I think we didn't grow up with National Lampoon, the magazine we grew up with uh, Mad. You know, man, man, well, that was from the fifties, man. Everybody grew up with that. Yeah, but, and it was like that was kind of what we were kids. That that was our thing. And then I think obviously it turned into Mad TV, which was its own sketch thing on, on Comedy yeah, Central. Yeah, sure, that was a big one. And then, and like you mentioned, like you are always kind of creative, um, as a kid and, and throughout your life growing up, and that's always been kind of a backbone for who you are. And like you even started like your own kind of comic with your friends when you were, or not comic, but uh magazine sort oh, of yeah the underground yeah, yeah underground newspaper in high school right? newspaper yeah that dealt in comedy and satire and stuff like that and I guess even though you always had that creative background it kind of felt like reading the book that people didn't always recognize you as a creative individual you know like in the corporations in the business they never really wanted to give you the the reins creatively for everything did you ever feel like you noticed that yourself or certainly um, in the in at Comedy Central, it was it was more of an issue um, because, as I said, you know, I was I was thrown in with a bunch of people who worked comedy and knew comedy and were mm. comedy creatives and everything else, and I, I wasn't a comedian or a comedy writer. And in those days, especially, I think it's still true today. You know, the entertainment business is divided into the world of the talent and the suit, and you're either one or the other, and the suits are known for crushing the talent, you know, the suits are known for, you know, my friend is a, is a sitcom writer. And he says, you know, I'd hand in a script for whatever I was working on. And then it would come back with notes from some guy who didn't know the first thing about comedy, but he was the senior VP of comedy at the network. And he'd write the stupidest stuff on it. And I'd have to go, you know, how am I going to deal with this? And that was the perception, you know, and I was certainly early on a suit and not considered creative. As time went by, you know, as time went by, by the time we got into Comedy Central, that kind of eased up a little bit. And by the time I went on to some other channels, like at Court TV, I was actually, well, I, I will say at Comedy Central, I did produce, and Comedy Channel, I did do some producing myself. But, you know, but by the time I got to Court TV, I was, you know, I was coming up with show ideas and I was, you know, really, and mm. people didn't know me other than, from that perspective. So I was just kind of considered both, I guess. I was considered like a creative executive, I guess. Yeah. That was, that was nice. Yeah. And like you mentioned the kind of Sue's versus talent thing, I did want to touch on, you mentioned in your book, how, especially in those times, specifically with like HBO specials, how you had the rights to basically show it wherever you wanted because you owned the rights to all the specials almost wholeheartedly. And obviously Recently, there's the whole Chappelle situation with the Chappelle show that was also on Comedy Central and how he has been speaking out against, you know, stuff like that. How do you see like throughout the years how things have changed or do you think the ownership, uh, whole ownership argument that's going on specifically in the creative world between the talent and then the suits? Like, how do you see that playing out in the whole Chappelle situation? Well, I don't know how it'll it'll play out with Chappelle. Um, I've been following it a little bit. And is it true that Netflix took it off the air and said, Netflix did take it off. Oh, uh, good for them. Actually good for Dave Chappelle for getting them to do that. You know, that 
I also think he's so much more important to them than just his old stuff that he has, you know, he's back producing so much new stuff. I think that he has no. leverage for sure, obviously. You hit the nail on the head. It's about leverage. And um, the story that Dave Chappelle tells where he walks in there and it, I, I saw him tell the story online about, you know, he was there and it was kind of like that. Everybody there was said that they were, you know, working with him and everything else. But in fact, they weren't. You know, and he he really didn't understand fully what was going on when they there was a clause in there that said that they owned his likeness and the name in perpetuity, which means forever. Um, And uh, and then when he figured out what that was, he didn't you know, obviously didn't like it too much. But a, a couple of things. First of all, let's put Dave aside for a second. The cable industry partly became the cable industry because. They were allowed to show um, things that came off network TV, like sitcom reruns and stuff, mm. without paying any royalties. Because if you showed it again on the network in the summertime, you had to pay everybody all over again. That was the way they worked it. But if they went to something else, if they went to cable, you didn't have to pay the royalties. So what did that mean? It was cheaper. And so there, that was like a little bit responsible for getting the cable industry up and running. Yeah. And believe me, nobody liked that. The talent who had worked on those shows were like, wait a second, you know, you can't just give this thing away. Uh, and the answer was, yeah, we can. You know, that's what's going on. Thing number two, and I worked for comedy and I worked for several other channels. And I actually um, did some work for other channels on this specific uh, uh, topic of how do you pay the talent and who owns things. Um, the cable channels all of them were, especially the ones that were, you know, successful, were known for just saying, you produce it, we own it. End of conversation. And if you said, no, I don't want you to own it. So they'd say, okay, who's next? You know, (laughs) it wasn't a negotiation, you know, they wanted to own it lock, stock and barrel. And one of the reasons is, and this is true of Comedy Central in the early days, and probably that was way after I was there, they wanted to be able to run the sprockets off it. They wanted to be able to repeat it. They wanted to be able to show it lots and lots anywhere, use it in promotion, all kinds of stuff. So they didn't want to mess around with, you know, we can play it five times. They wanted to play it forever. They wanted to own it. And marathons okay. became a huge thing for sure. Marathons became a huge thing. So that's why that whole thing developed that way. Now, I will also point out that I was reading this is a fun conversation. I don't know if people watching think it's fun, but I noticed the other day that it was the 50th anniversary of a Kinks song, you know, the Kinks from England, that band. And they were interviewing Ray Davies and he said, you know, early on we had a couple of hits and they made a huge amount of money and we didn't see any of it because we were taken in by the first guys we worked with. And I thought, man, this is like the oldest story in the book. And yeah. the reason is, I mean, I think it was also, you know, they, almost every band tells a similar story and a lot of comics tell similar stories um, and a lot of performers tell similar stories because you go in and what are you trying to do? You're trying to break in and um, the network or the distributor or the record company, they're sitting there saying, OK, you want to break in? Bring it on. We own it, you know, or we're we're taking most of it and you take a little of it and you're young and excited and you say, OK, great. Um, and again, this is not to blame Dave Chappelle for the mess he got himself in, but people 
do get themselves in exactly the same mess when they're starting out. It just happens over and over. I don't think, I don't see how things could have been much different for Dave Chappelle. He, he tells the story of being turned down by HBO and then he went to comedy and they, they uh, said yes. And I'm sure he was thrilled at the time, but then think about my story. I started comedy channel, which became Comedy Central. I had to talk people into it. I had to work my butt off it in it. I, I did everything I could. It was personal to me for years and years. And then I got fired. And that was because they changed management. And I remember thinking to myself as I'm getting fired, and the, the guy who fired me said, you know, it's not anything you did. Of course, your fingerprints are all over this place. You did great. You know, you put it all together. It was your idea. Like this was your idea. Yeah. And I'm saying to myself, the hell do you have to do to get a job in this world? You know, I started the whole channel. You'd think they'd keep me around for a while, right? But no. And and that that is the point. These people are not your friends. They're not your family, for the most part. I mean, I'm not going to say everybody in the industry is cold-hearted like this, but and I think that I, I demonstrate that in my book, even at the ending. But you know, if somebody walks in and and has a great idea, they will take it. Thank you for the great idea. That's that's the way it is. And similarly with Dave Chappelle's show, they said, terrific, we'll take it. Um, and uh, people will continue to do this over and over, yeah. I'm sure. And, good, you know, good for Dave Chappelle at this point because he's got a lot of leverage. Got a lot. Right now. Yeah. Um, so he can get things redone somehow, sometime. But there's a lot of people who see stuff running out there that they don't want running that they feel they can't do anything about. They lost yeah. the rights. It's out there. What am I going to do? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we kind of missed it earlier, like technology, I think is changing, changing the dynamic a lot because it's no longer like just four big gatekeepers. Now you can kind of make your, your own way a little bit, build your own crowd. And then you can bring that with you where you go instead of having to only rely on these big pillars of entertainment that control the crowd, that control the audience, that control the entryway. So that's one good thing in the future, especially with entertainment, is that it is becoming a little bit more uh, democratized. Know, democratized is, is the word for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, it, it is. Um, but at the end of the day, a lot of the people who are doing these YouTube things and some of them are making, you know, a lot of money and have big audiences, uh, uh, granted. But, you know, when they get a call from the network and they somebody says, hey, we're going to put you on TV, you're going to have, you know, a weekly audience of you know, millions. Yeah. And here's what we're going to pay you. That's like a good day. And so I, I point that out just because the big entertainment distribution companies, to the extent that they stick around forever, I mean, maybe they will, maybe they won't. Well, there's new ones, Netflix and Amazon. Yeah. What do you think that's all about? Yeah. You know, that's just, that's just cable channels all over again or networks all over again. Well, Netflix is having their own, they've had their own kind of things with comedians and how they feel like they've been underpaid for, you know, specials and all this stuff. So they're, they're kind of experiencing the same, same sort of thing. Yeah, that's true. And again, I, I, uh, not to defend them, but looking at the fabulous history of the entertainment business in America, that's what happens starting in the twenties. I mean, you, know, you don't have to look very hard to find stories of performers who were taken advantage of, by the studios, by the, the networks, by anybody. And to a certain extent, at the time, if you go back and talk to these people, meaning the studios and the talent, the talent says, I was taken advantage of. The studio says, or the television network says, hey, 
we just saw an opportunity. Nobody knew this person. So we made a good deal. That's, that's our perspective. Yeah. You know, and they don't, they don't see it as kind of like the evil, any, anything evil about it. And to a certain extent, you know, they made people's careers, even though those people weren't remunerated appropriately for whatever they were doing. So yeah. it's, it's, let me just say it's complicated. Yeah, it's good, for, good for Dave Chappelle for becoming as famous and, and as, as powerful he is, as he is, because he can go back and redress some of these things with the network, but most people can't most of yeah. that. And, and, you know, that's the way it is for every Dave. There's like a million others that, you know, either didn't don't have that power anymore or, or didn't even, uh, you know, break through like they thought they would when they made the deal. So, you know, like you said, it's complicated. Yeah. And what, all you can do is what Ray Davies said the kinks did. We quit that label. We went to another label and that was the end of that. And then we got famous on the other label. Yeah. And that's all you can do is go somewhere else and do a better deal. And then you're in business. I mean, Dave was just signed with 250 million from Netflix. So I think he's doing, doing all right, you know? So. Yeah. I, yes. 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 I, I, I understand though. I do understand him being as pissed off as he yeah, is. It, it is nobody wants to be, nobody wants to be taken advantage of. Yeah. Not poor people, not rich people, not any people. Yeah, it's you know, not it's something kind of like you said with the music industry parallel, you know, just like all the artists getting, you know, like they kind of want to own their masters, you know, like the master recordings. Like I want to own my masters of my show, right. you know, so it's, you know, like like when Michael Jackson bought the Beatles catalog and then like put, you know, one of their songs on a commercial or something like, you know, one of the guys gets mad, but it's like you don't own it anymore. You know, I own it now. So like. Those are like the complications, like you said, with the deals with all these like new comedians popping off and like maybe they get approached by a big company and like we're going to put you on. You want 100 million in perpetuity, you know, like <laughs> we'll give you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, that that is right. Listen, at the end of the day, it's the entertainment business. You know, I mean, you're not doing this. People aren't in this. Well, the people are in it for all kinds of reasons. I certainly was. But mostly for a lot of it, I was in it because I loved it and I wanted to do something, but it is a business. And when I say I was afraid they were going to shut it down every day in the first year, it wasn't because for any other reason, and it wasn't making enough money. You know, that's why I worried about it. And that's why you have to, you know, worry about making money and keeping your costs down. And that's, that's the other side of it. So. Yeah. Complicated. Yeah. And uh, I mean, return to the book to kind of round things out is, why now? Why did you choose to write this memoir now? And, you know, what was your experience writing? Is this your first book that you've written? Yes, it's my first book. I hope it's not my last. Um, but who knows? Sounds I like um, your stories, so hopefully not. Sorry, hopefully not. Yeah, thank yeah you. you got plenty of stories to tell. So Lots of stories. Um, I, the first thing I did when I stopped working in, in television a few years ago was thought about what I wanted to do. And I always wanted to, you know, I always liked writing. And my wife said, Hey, you know, Sarah Lawrence Institute writing Institute is down the street. You can basically go take some classes there. Um, so I thought, well, that sounds like fun, maybe. And it turns out it was, and I took classes in memoir. So I wrote a lot of stories about my childhood, some of which ended up in the book. Um, and when I say a lot, I mean, I'm talking like 200,000 words worth of stories about my childhood, but then one day I wrote, I think I, I wrote a, the story that you read, the Eddie Gordetsky story mm -hmm. about him saying, what do you know about 
And I read that to the class and they were like, wow, we didn't know you had anything to do with comedy. That's cool. You know, um, why don't you tell some more stories like that? So I did. And that that's how it started. And then after a while, I realized, wow, I, you know, this was a great adventure of mine. Yeah. And I could probably I, I should probably tell it so that people understand what went on in those days and where comedy came from. And maybe they can have a better appreciation for it all. And yeah. that's, that's how it happened. Well, it was extremely, extremely well written for this being your first book. It was very entertaining from front to back. Yeah, and I really enjoyed like, <clears throat> yeah, like a lot of flashbacks kind of in between while we'll we have a conversation and you'll flashback to like an older, you know, something that happened in a younger age that kind of applies to what was going on now. And I guess my question was, was this intentionally written like a movie or a show? Because it really has that kind of cadence and feel of a movie. Well, I think my storytelling style is probably influenced by movies and television, given that, you know, I was steeped in that for so long. Um, I also, uh, I, I didn't write it linearly. As I said, I wrote a story here, a story there. But then when I started to sit down and talk about, to myself mostly, about how to tell the story, I wanted to make it exciting. Yeah. And, you know, nobody does that better than the movies or television because they got to end a scene where the audience wants to see what happens in the next scene. They don't, want you, they don't want you to turn off the TV or walk out of the theater. So I really, I, I think that's the way I went at it. And people have told me, uh, and I, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but it, because it was very flattering, people have told me that it's kind of a page turner. Like you want to find out what happens. And that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted it to be something that you could read and, and would be like a, a thriller, you know, like what's going to happen to this guy? What's going to happen? Is the channel going to happen? Is he going to keep his job? Is Bill Moore going to get him fired? Is, you know, what's going to happen? And, and I like hearing that, you know, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a, that, and I laughed out loud a lot. And those are the two, yeah. two favorite compliments on this book. Uh, those, those both apply. Definitely. And were there like, was there any hesitation when you were like writing about your peers or revealing kind of your personal thoughts and perspectives about situations that people you were around wouldn't have known until you read it, until you wrote about it, basically? Yeah, I would say there was massive hesitation, <laughs> as in mortal fear. I, you know, when I first started writing memoir um, in these classes, it got talked about a lot. Like, oh, my gosh, I'm writing a story about my mother, someone would say. And if she reads this, she'll hate me forever. And we talk about that. And at the end of the day, you realize that the great writers, whether they're memoirists or novelists, because so much about so, so much a novel is based on people's real lives or real people, you know, that when you become a writer, you just got to cross that line. You know, you just got to learn that you're going to you're going to you're going to tell things about yourself and about other people that you wouldn't necessarily think of doing. And the first experience is you're telling it to a small group of people in a class or a writer's group. And that, that is hard, but then they sort of know you and they're sort of starting to like you. And okay. So they're telling, they're telling crazy stories too about their families or friends or whatever. So you're all like in this little bubble and you're sharing, you're sharing, but then you start thinking about, okay, I'm writing a book about real people who don't come off great in this book and they might read it. And in fact, I think they have read it. In some cases. And I just said, th there's a great quote, and unfortunately, I won't get it completely right. But there's a great quote by a writer, which is something like, look, if you're writing a memoir, and somebody comes up to you and says, boy, you really, 
depicted me in a nasty way, you should say to them, well, listen, if you wanted to be depicted more nicely in my memoir, you should have been nicer. <laughs> yeah. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And to a certain extent, even, you know, I think most people in my book come off pretty well. There are a couple of people who don't, you know, but in, I don't take them apart as much as tell the story. Yeah. You know? So you make up your own mind. I don't say that guy was a jerk. I say, here's what happened. And yes, it looks like the guy was a jerk. So you say the guy was a jerk. But I think that memoirs or stories where they do say, you know, my boss was an asshole, for example. And I think that's sort of unnecessary. Um, but there are lots of memoirists who do that, too, who really just say, I'm, you know, I was mistreated by the following people and I am going to take them to task for it um, yeah. and hope they suffer. <laughs> as a, a compliment. I, I will say this too, as much as it's hard to write about people in kind of a negative way, and you know, they're not going to come off well. And as I said, there's only a couple of people I think in the book, I don't know if you agree with me, who don't come off so great. Yeah, there's only maybe yeah. three that don't come right, off right. in the best light. Not horrible, it's, but not great. Yeah, right. So it's also hard to write about people you worked with and loved and cared about and were friends with and thought were great who went on to greatness, for example, and there were plenty of those in the book. Um, and you start, I, I, I started thinking about it as a sketch artist, you know, somebody with a sketch pad and you want to sketch the person, you want to put a few lines in, and then you want to turn it around and show the person to say, does that look like you? And yeah. you want the person to say, yeah, you know, it does look like me. You want everybody in the room to say, yeah, that looks like him. Yeah, that's cool. You did a good job. And that was really how I felt that I was, I had to build a portrait of some of these people pretty quickly, but also have them recognize themselves and have other people recognize them. And that, that is as challenging as anything else. Um, and to a certain extent, I cared about that more than I cared about the people who, who obviously or ultimately weren't treated as well, yeah. not treated, but didn't come off as well. I think you nailed it. They, they all came off like specifically how, not even how you intention, just how they came out in the story. Like you didn't, like you said, you didn't specifically say he was a jerk or this was, this guy was doing this. It was just like the situation and you kind of read into the circumstances and the situation and how they responded to things. And you kind of, you just get that feel from the conversation like you would in real life. So I thought that was like a really oh, thank part you. of the book and the story in, in which you did. That was by design. I wanted that to happen. So I'm glad uh -huh. it did. It worked. And I guess the last thing is when are we going to get some adaptations of this? Because it's perfect for a movie, TV, something. You know, in the last few weeks, I've been hearing that a lot from people in the business. Nobody's actually said, let's do it, but it's come up. Um, maybe it will. I mean, you know, it's interesting that you, uh, you bring it up. I, when I wrote it, I thought, yeah, nobody's going to want to make anything out of this, which didn't bother me so much. I was glad I made a book out of it. Um, but I'm sure going to keep my options open. And also I will say that, um, you know, it's coming out as an audio book at some point too. Okay. So that, that'll be fun. But uh, yeah, I'd love to see it as, uh, you know, go on to movies or specials. Um, next year is the 30th anniversary of uh, Comedy Central. Uh -huh. you know? And uh, that should be a big year for them. And maybe it'll, you know, maybe it'll fit into that somehow. Yeah, so maybe we'll Comedy Central will get in, turn into a series. That, after reading it would be, make for a great, a great series, a great movie, whatever. Oh, thanks for saying that. Thank you. And for I guess that. if it does become adapted, who would you want to play you? Uh, 
I had not thought about it. Um, uh, I got no idea. I honestly, I, somebody said Ryan Gosling. I thought, Ryan Gosling. <laughs> I guess you want somebody as handsome as, and as, you know, as charismatic as possible. So right. <laughs> I, I have no idea. I'm sure it'll be, if it gets made, it'll be some unknown who will go on to greatness, but, um, We'll see what happens. Awesome. Uh, Darice, you got any questions or anything you say? Um, I don't know. Just like maybe a random one. Like, um, uh, what was your favorite roast out of like the Comedy Central roast you guys did? Because that was like a whole culture it kind of created in terms of everything. Just Yeah, that kind of developed after I left. But I, I was at the roast, I have to say. I was there in person at the roast of Hugh Hefner. I don't know if you saw. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which kind of, I guess, ended up being famous for a couple of reasons. It was right after nine eleven, and I mean, right after, like yeah. two weeks, a week or two weeks later, mm. everybody was really raw. Um, and Jeff Ross was the host. It was, you know, I I knew him when I was at Comedy Central too. One of the funniest guys on earth, as he's doing roast, I think. Really yeah. born to the born to the. Yeah, he owns that whole space. Just perfect. Yeah. He got um, a spinoff from it, basically, right? Like, I'm sorry. I think he's like spun off a whole show of his own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, he's uh, as he should have. But um, Gilbert Gottfried was there that night. Uh, oh yeah. And he started to tell a joke about 9/11. Oh, like right after yeah. I don't know if that made it into the recording of the of the. Um, show or if they even aired that show i don't even i guess they couldn't have it was really foul but it was because <laughs> it was about hugh Hefner. but gilbert godfrey got up there and he starts to make a joke about 9 11 and the crowd went nuts you gotta remember it's mostly the industry it's agents and comedians and you know i guess hugh hefner's crowd whatever it is but it was like no no too soon too soon you know they're screaming him down and he instantly on a dime turned and started telling a joke. And the joke was the aristocrats, which is a famous inside comedy joke, which Penn Jillette ended up making a movie about several comedians telling the aristocrats. And I th- and if you watch the movie, which is called The Aristocrats, um, Gilbert Godfrey telling the joke at that, at that uh, roast is the best part of the movie. I never laughed so hard in my life. And the crowd was, they were just, dying laughing it was so funny and you got to think about it in retrospect because i do that he started by making people as uncomfortable as you could physically make them in the room he started by just throwing everybody to the floor and stomping on them and then he said never mind let me tell you something funny and everybody (laughs) i don't know i never talked to gilbert godfrey about that uh and probably never will. But I wonder if he did that on purpose. I always wonder. <laughs> can you get him on and see if you can ask? Yeah, him? yeah. We'll, we'll yeah, yeah, yeah. email, see if we can get this specific question in, you know? <laughs> right. I'm interested. Now I'm going to have to go back and watch this, this roast for sure. Yeah, no, they're, 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 they're good. I like them. I like them. That's a tradition, by the way, that went way back in comedy. You know, that didn't start with Comedy Central. That started at the Friars Club where somebody, uh-huh. you know, that they – basically threw a party for somebody and said, you're it. And then all their friends came up and took them apart. Huh. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, yeah. uh, I have one more question. What was probably your po- your favorite 
program programming post you know your career at, at Comedy Central that that they've aired. You mean the, the my my favorite show? Yeah. Yeah, there's so many. I have to say, Doctor Katz, professional therapist. You know that show That's with Jonathan awesome. Katz? Yeah, yeah, that was such a great show. Um, and Jonathan was so funny. It was an animated show. He played a psychiatrist, and he had a different comedian on every week. And the comedian was the patient. Yeah. And the comedian would basically get on the couch and do his routine, or her routine, um, which worked great because most comedians talk about how miserable they are as kids, or whatever. <laughs> Right. Or, you know, how bad the relationships are. And uh, a friend of mine who was a writer said, man, that's the best written show on television. And I said, that's because he's using the material of comedians who's, who've worked on 15 minutes of material for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> that's why it's so well written. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, that was that was one of my favorite. And the other one, you know, Mystery, Mystery Science Theater 3000, which was mm-hmm. just a cold classic. And just... Yeah. The guys, when I got to meet the guys, which was before we even put the show on the air, you know, I sat in on one of the writers' meetings as they were doing that. And again, so clever and so funny and so perfectly attuned to take advantage of bad movies or even good movies, you know, and how silly they can be. So, yeah, I would say that. Awesome. Well, you've had an incredible journey and this is an incredible story and like one that we never really you know, think about when we're watching Comedy Central, oh, how did this start? Who was behind this? But to, you know, be able to meet the man behind it and to kind of understand everything that went into it and to to get this book out of it has been, has been uh, yeah, amazing. Yeah, I hope, I, I hope people read the book, you know, and it's not just about selling books because it's about, I think it's, a, you know, I think I would like people to read it because I think it's. Yeah, know, it's, it's great. People definitely. It's called Constant, can I say what his name is? Yep. Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. It's available at Amazon. Uh, and if you want to know more about me or the book or both, uh, you can go to my website, artbellwriter.com. We will have all these links for you guys once these oh, right. go up later underneath in the descriptions. But again, uh, thank you very much for joining us. We're very honored to have this Appreciate conversation it. with you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. No, it was amazing. You know, I felt like I learned so much. It's crazy yeah. just listening to you talk about it. So. Uh, it almost felt like a little audio book we got today too. Like uh, <laughs> I might get the audio book just to like, you know, hey, if you like, need, if you need somebody to read your audio book, I'm always available, you know? Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you guys for joining us. We will have all this info for you guys up later links in the description and peace. Take care. Living life fearless, everybody. Mm-hmm.